Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs. We'll be talking to corporate leaders about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Kick off the series, we have 1871 CEO Betsy Ziegler. Welcome, Betsy. How Thank are you? you? I'm excited to be here. I'm great. Fantastic. Extremely happy to have you here today. Um, you know, part of what we're going to be talking about is innovation and ushering in innovation, not just in Chicago, but for corporations as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, you worked at GE, um, McKinsey, and at Northwestern Kellogg School of Management as the Dean of Students, and then as the Chief Innovation Officer. Before coming to 1871 and, and being a CEO, can you talk a little bit about your career journey and their, your path? Sure. Yeah, I think look, outside looking in, my career path doesn't, it's not a straight line, certainly. Um, it was a straight line for a period of time. I started GE and then McKinsey, so pretty, you know, uh, standard path, right? Come out of undergrad, do the do a training program, learn a lot, learn how to lead people, learn how to, the, the importance of being known, how to do something, like building credibility. Went off to business school, became a consultant. I mean, very typical path. Sure. And then in 2009, I had an aha moment. And that aha moment was right when the uh, financial crisis hit and I was serving financial service institutions as a partner at the firm. And the clients wanted to work with us in really different ways. And I was, I was feeling a little stuck personally, where I felt like the only thing I could talk about was you know, the, the fact that the life insurance industry had been devalued by 50%. And I'm a very proud Ohio State Buckeye, so I'd talk about something about the Ohio State Buckeyes and something <laughs> else. And I felt like I was in this tiny little box. Right. And I was becoming this uninteresting person. And so I I like to say I took out a piece of paper, but it was really in my Excel uh, spreadsheet. And I wrote down the 40 things I wanted to do in my life by the time I was 40. 40. 40, 40, 40 by, by 40. 40. Nice. And I was 37 at the time. Yeah. And... Just the act, frankly, of writing down that list completely changed my orientation of how I viewed how I was spending my time and my life. And I started executing against that list. And that list created opportunities for me to just experience a whole number of things. I mean, it was wide-ranging things like being a seat filler at the Primetime Emmys or meeting Bette Midler, which, you know, is probably an odd thing for lots of your listeners. But for me, I, I love her. And so sure. I'm not, not ashamed to say it. Um travel, et cetera. And, and it also kind of forced me to ask the question about, am I doing, am I doing the work that I want to do? And uh, my rule at the firm, which I, I'm a very proud alum of, was that every six months I would ask myself, am I still learning? Am I still having fun? Am I still having an impact? And for 11 years, the answer to that question was yes. And then it started not to be yes. Right. So I, but this list really, and this sort of the execution because this list prompted me to reimagine everything. That's so interesting because <laughs> so many people I know have a very similar trajectory, but they don't hit that epiphany. They don't, right. they don't get to that moment. Was there any other catalyst that was it, you know, did family have to do at all with it? Was there any other? There wasn't at that time. I mean, you know, when you're, when you're a pretty senior, I was not yet the next level of partner. So, but my clients were starting to go away. So sort of this, from a professional perspective, the work that I was going to have to do post-crisis to rebuild my client portfolio and did I really care enough about that next stage of the partnership enough to work harder than I'd ever worked before when I'd already been working so hard. You know, th- that certainly came in, came into play. Um, but it was really just this this opportunity that I 
that I discovered to own my life. I mean, really own my life, right. you know, and, and so I, I left the firm and I uh, bought a round the world plane ticket and I left, um, with, uh, with the hope of working in higher ed and I came back and nobody in higher ed was interested in hiring me, but big banks and financial services companies were. And, um, I, I had an interview with a big bank and they gave me this big offer and all my mentors told me to take it. And I just, you know, I just didn't want to do it. It was like be a consultant inside a big bank. And if I was going to still be a consultant, I would have, have stayed as right. a consultant. And so I um, went out to lunch to, to celebrate my decision of turning it down. And my friend was late for lunch and on the cover of the Chicago Tribune I was reading while I was waiting for her was a picture of, was an article of the seven people to watch in Chicago in 2011. And one of those was the new dean at Kellogg, who had been there for six months at the mm-hmm. business school at Northwestern. And I, so I literally, I didn't have an iPhone. This is like pre, you know, this is sure. only seven years ago, but it was vast journey from where we are today, which we'll get to, I think, in this conversation. And so I sent her what I call a cold call email. I'm not an alum of, of Kellogg. And I, so I said, McKinsey partner leaving, thinking about higher ed, would you spend a few minutes with me on the phone? And she invited me to lunch and... And I started consulting for the school. And wow. I mean, the, the story is longer, but I've already spent a lot of time telling it up to this point. And so th- it was that I tell this to a lot of incoming students. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of Kellogg students have now heard this story multiple times because I would greet them as their dean of students in when they got accepted and at orientation and then certainly throughout their journey at the school about this notion of like, what is the worst thing that was going to happen by me reaching out to her? Right. And the worst thing was that she wasn't going to answer. Yeah. And the second worst thing is that she would say, no, I can't help you. And both those things are re- I could recover from. Right? Exactly. I mean, it's not tragic. Yeah. And, and so I was in that role for four years and then transitioned to chief innovation officer for two and a half. And over that whole period of time, I had been an active investor in young companies and advisor and mentor and um, you know, certainly connected to 1871. And then the executive recruiter called me last fall and said, hey, you know, would you be interested in having a conversation with us about this role that I'm in now? And so it's been, it's a long story, but I think it's an important one uh, for people to think as they think about their own career paths of really, you don't have to, you know, you can get yourself out of it. And I, I frankly, I think I, I don't regret a single moment I spent at G or McKinsey or Northwestern, but I wish I had figured out this sort of life ownership thing before I was 37. What's interesting about that story, because I think it ties in very closely with innovation as a whole, because innovation is, is scary for a lot of companies because you associate it with risk. Mm-hmm. What I take from that story specifically is that the courage you had, especially in a, in a financial kind of recession or crisis, to be able to say, actually, this is my moment to, to hit the reset button. Um, and the second thing you mentioned is really taking ownership of your life. In that cold email, people get so intimidated by by just reaching out to individuals um, that they know, let alone people that they don't know. So um, very interesting story. Yeah, I like to think about the financial crisis as being a gift to me, actually. Not financially, but certainly (laughs) certainly from a wake-up call. And then the sort of owning your life or acting with intent is one of my – I have a handful of life mottos, and one of them is acting with intent. Love that. So most important question as a follow-up to this series is – did you get a chance to meet Bette Midler? I did. Nice. I did in Las nice. Vegas, and it was incredible. And I told her, I told her, you know, I've, that I've learned that you have to plan to live an interesting life. And she said, 
to me, she said, Betsy, I wish somebody had told me that, you know, a couple decades ago. And I looked at her and I was like, you know, at least from outside in, you've lived a pretty interesting life. Like, I think she was just trying to, you know, to make me feel good. But, uh, yeah. yeah, no, it was fantastic. It was a brief meeting, but, sure. it, but I did get to meet her. That's so great. That's so awesome. That's a great story of, uh, and a testament to, to going after your dreams. So one of the things, you know, on the corporate side, you have kind of that, that lane with both GE and McKinsey, but you also have the side of Northwestern in the academic piece. How would you describe innovation specifically as it relates to each kind of individual area? You've got kind of corporate side, you've got education. How are they different and how do you describe kind of innovation as a whole? Yeah, I think, I think as an umbrella definition, I think of innovation as the as the ideation, but also the implementation of creative ideas that drive business value. Um, and we can get to sort of what works and what and what doesn't work, but I think that's sort of the umbrella view of what I think about, about innovation. I think there's a lot of sustaining innovation, so to borrow Clay Christensen's language, and then much less disruptive innovation. And most of the organizations I've worked with have been really good at sustaining innovation, right? right? So the the stuff you have to keep doing, the theme around continuous improvement. I, you know, I'm a Six Sigma black belt from a million years ago from GE, sure. right? This, and I believe that you're never done, right? That you always can get better. Uh, but I've never worked somewhere that was willing to disrupt themselves to to get to a you know a different trajectory, a different plane. Yeah. And I think that the challenge in being in an innovation role, which I was only officially in at Northwestern, but you know, from a mindset perspective, certainly felt um, felt that way at GE and, and McKinsey, is that, you know, it has to start at the top and what the leader, what the CEO or the dean is sort of sending out in terms of expectation. And, and every firm I've had, the every organization I've had the opportunity to work for has been literally, I mean, I work for GE under Jack Welsh. And, you know, I worked for arguably one of the top consulting firms in the world. And then I worked for one of the best business schools in the world. And so, um, when you work for some of the best, you, at times they lose their scrappiness because they don't have, they, they haven't been impacted yet. Right. But I think that the, the irony of that is that the best companies have to be the ones that are working the hardest to, to think through what's happening because the companies that you see scrambling have already been impacted by the, by disruption and then it's almost too late. Right. Right. And so like we need to see the best companies, the best schools investing in this and believing that this change is coming, whatever form that change is going to look like. And how do you, how do you get, get through that? I think McKinsey's actually done uh, outside in has done a nice job over the last couple of years because they've extended, they've, sort of moved from being just strategy and moved into lots of different um, areas now, some through acquisition, so that they right. can serve their clients on all these different levels where they used, used to, other firms used to do those, some of that work. Interesting. So so in, in your opinion, it's really the, the corporate struggle is, is a lot of times based on that disruptive innovation versus the sustainable innovation or sustainable. I, yeah, innovation. I think most companies do a pretty good job on sustaining innovation, right? Because they're getting... They're, they're managing to a bottom line of some sort, whether they're public or private. And so they, they know they have to get better. But it, a lot of it is more efficiency focused versus strategically, where is the world moving to? And therefore, where do we what what other choices should we be making? What uh, what are our core capabilities and how might they um, how might we be able to leverage them differently, given 
the new technology that's coming um, our way or the way that consumers are interacting with technology or I, I don't see very many companies asking those questions. Right. And I, my instinct, at least from my Northwestern experience, is that it's tenure line faculty. Nobody tells them what to do. Right, <laughs> they don't exactly. have to do anything you say. Yeah. And Northwestern faculty are fantastic to work with. Don't get me wrong, but they don't. If, if it's not impacting their day to day life of how they're doing their research or teaching, you know. Yeah. And when you look at Northwestern, and so I, I would have to to get people um, to engage in conversation. I I would talk about two narratives. One was glass half full, and one was glass half empty. They were both completely factual. It was just a perspective of how right. you saw the world. Sure. And it's much more fun to be in the glass half full view of the world. But right. my job as a chief innovation officer was to kind of straddle between them yeah. and to help people understand. But this, this other thing, set of things is also true, right? The glass half empty view is also true. So let's be, we, you know, we have to have both those in our head as we plan our strategy forward. Interesting. One of the things that we've seen, especially with, with companies that we work with, is this kind of resurgence of of the kind of the bottoms up approach to innovation where you, you're encouraging entrepreneurship and, and things like that. During your time in the corporate world, did you see a lot of that come to fruition in, in terms of kind of that entrepreneurship mindset? Um, I think so, although I don't know if we called it that then. I mean, we're, you know, my GE, we're, we're, we're going pretty far back in time for my GE, for my GE career. I definitely, they definitely had a theme of entrepreneurship for sure though. Cause, and you know, their, their frame of it was Six Sigma, right? Right. This, Again, you know, it's kind of zero defect kind of a, approach to it. Much more about how you how you deliver to the customer, how you run a production line. I was in the G Capital. I was on the more of the consumer facing on the on the financial services side of of GE. I, you know, I think that and and at McKinsey, the, the McKinsey's value uh, mission is to uh, build the firm and to drive long term impact for your clients. Since so you're always you're always learning. You're always exposed to new ideas, which I think is sort of inherent in entrepreneurship and people who are passionate about that and sort of learning mindset and, you know, don't have fixed boundaries sort of locking you into a particular perspective. Um, But I don't I think that the challenge is, while I agree that we should encourage everybody bottoms up and new ideas, because, you know, in my view, there's I don't have any there's no hierarchy in problem solving for me. So, like, the best idea might come from the person who started on the job yesterday, right? right? Great, fine, yeah. right? But in most of these organizations, even those that have chief innovation officers, it's not clear that those people are really accountable for, really accountable for driving innovation. And a lot of companies I talk to, you say, well, who's responsible for this? And they say, well, we all are. I say, well, you know, okay. So, but if you thought about it differently and you thought about innovation or entrepreneurship, as a capability, like you do marketing or finance or uh, supply chain, you know, not everybody is responsible for those. Right. And those were created a hundred years ago based on the needs of, of those organizations at the time. And, and now it might be time for another new real function to emerge and to have real accountability, which means, you know, the CEO or the Dean or whoever is the top of the organization says, this is super important that there's metrics that people are held accountable for, that there's a shared vocabulary, that there's um, that there's an expectation of try and fail and be rewarded for failure. Right. And these are productive failures. This isn't, you know, um, I heard um, Eric Reese talking about this at one point, and this isn't ha- testing with the air- airline pilot, like while he's flying, 
you know, a 767. This right. is, but that wouldn't be a productive failure, right? But there's so many things. And, you know, you know, as an entrepreneur, you're trying things all the time and, and you're learning all the time and all of those, you're going to fail several times a day, but it's not massive failures. These are just, you've tried something, didn't work, pivot, try again. And that culture, even if you have bottoms up in most companies is not pervasive, right? Yeah. People are afraid. Right. And they're, because their careers are on, they, they feel like their careers are on the line, whether they are or not, that is how people feel. Is there anything that you believe corporations can can do to to get over that hurdle of kind of um, the fear of failure and being able to uh, adopt that type of mindset? Yeah, I mean, I, yes, and I'll share a couple of thoughts I have on it. I think I will first say that this is super. It is super hard, and the reason it's really hard. Well, there's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons it's really hard is that we're asking people to manage the day to day and all the firefighting and all that stuff that comes with their role and carve out time to think about what are the big things that are coming and how do I manage for that too. And doing both those things at the same time is extremely difficult. Right. Um, And and so that is, um, I think, inherent in in how how you think about structuring roles where you might have somebody responsible for this. I think the risk of having a chief innovation officer that isn't actually responsible for anything in the business is that then they become this person that's like running around, maybe not even co-located, doing interesting things, with presumably with some budget, but it's not actually linked in to the business. And so you, you sort of have to have that shared accountability of day-to-day results as well as the big. Um, but the first thing I would, you know, for me, if I was advising a company, the CEO has to demonstrate that this is important. Right. If it is not important, then then say then don't pretend like it is right. right? And and some of the innovation theater that goes on that you you know, you know, as well if not more than me, where, you know, the the posters go up on the wall and it feels like a little checkbox exercise and we did it, but you haven't done it because this requires significant behavior change. So there's a CEO, the CEO there. I think from an organization structure, how you think about this and how you hold people accountable, which means that there's some metrics that you're all sort of, you know, being held responsible for. And this point around rewarding failure, again, not massive failure that's going to take down the company, but, you know, I was taught, I was at a conference yesterday and somebody was talking about in a lot of companies, the expectation in some of these things when working with a startup or young companies that you go to the, the plate the first time and the first pitch if the first pitch coming over isn't a home run. It, it's a massive problem. Right. Well, it's never going to be a yeah. home run, or it's going to be one in a, you know ten million times. It's going to be a home run, and that's just a it, it's a it's a very different transition. And so, if this is like I said, if this is not embraced by the CEO, and there isn't a journey that the organization, the leadership team doesn't have kind of um, a shared purpose and and an expectation, they're going to move on it together. It's not going to. It's, it's just not going to work. Right. And I, I love what you said about the. Um the difference between kind of the, the 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 goal having dedicated resources towards innovation versus the mindset of it, it being a kind of a, a, a holistic mindset throughout the entire organization. In your opinion, it, is, does it make sense for companies to start with the path of the, the setting the vision from the CEO on innovation and then having that be adopted by the entire organization or have like a dedicated team? You know, we, we see this a lot with, you know, um, the scenarios with with Boeing and, and their teams early on, um, 
uh, the Skunk Works teams and things like that, that were really kind of, if you will, the Navy SEALs of, you know, innovation for the group. So it was a, a subset within the organization, but it wasn't something that was responsibility of the entire organization. How do you view those two two points? Is it Because you mentioned earlier as well that ideas can come from anyone, right? So does it make sense for corporations if they're starting off viewing their innovation strategy to think about it from a, a very specialized activity versus something that, that's pervasive throughout the entire Yeah, I think it's a great question. I think it's, there's nuance to it. So I think the CEO has to set the direction, the expectation of his whole leadership team, his or her whole leadership team to be open to this and to encourage idea generation, certainly. But I do think you have to have somebody on the senior team whose job it is day in and day out to make this happen, presumably with a team. But that person has to be in a role that has enough power, positional power, that they can influence their peers. And my instinct is that they have to be held accountable to some metric, a financial metric likely, that everyone can agree on, right? That definitionally there isn't debate and people understand it up front because you have to give a reason for the head of finance or the or the head of sales to listen to this other person. And, you know, there's a constant conflict. I mean, at GE, certainly I felt in operations, the conflict with, with marketing and sales, where marketing and sales wanted to do a certain thing, but operations was holding the, you know, was responsible for the cost to, to deliver that. Or, you know, you see these conflicts and you have to figure out a way to break through those. And so I think it's, for me, it's about giving that authority to a person with the, with the expectation that they are to work across the organization and that the way you do that is by holding that whole leadership team accountable to a shared metric. So there's, you know, you know, the, I think if you look at most of these organizations, Boeing or, or, you know, name your organization, there's a lot of really great work going on. If you, if you're in a drone, like if you're flying in a drone above them and you took, and so you could see the, you know, the drone eye view of what was happening You'd probably see really great things, innovative thinking, mm-hmm. leveraging a lot of the techniques that you teach in these different groups, different either different business lines or different functions. Right. But the the challenge comes with when they try to when they when they go across. Mm-hmm. And so you have to fix the cross organizational, you know, uh, communication problem and and accountability problem. You can't because you, you could get duped by looking like, oh, well, look, the, the, the folks in manufacturing are doing an amazing job and they've got, you know, they're using lean and they've got agile product development and they're doing all this fantastic stuff. But somehow when it, when it comes out of manufacturing and moves over to another area, then it, it loses something. And that's where, that's where that role I think is so imperative and the importance of having shared vocabulary. And I know I'm, I'm saying it a lot, but this notion of, of joint accountability and a shared metric. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense because when you talk about the innovation engine, right, being able to have that n- not just sustainable innovation but being able to have that disruptive piece too. I'm wondering, you know, we think about that because a lot of what you, you hit on some really great points, the accountability to the business. We've seen a lot of success with, with the, the sustainable innovation and a lot of corporations that are accountable, innovation director, or VP of innovation, or chief innovation officer accountable to other business units. But sometimes we've seen that that puts corporations in a position where that disruptive innovation is, is difficult, right? Because the blue sky thinking 
you know, who knows where that's going to disrupt and, and what business unit it needs to be held accountable for that particular piece because it's blue sky thinking, right? It could be a new product launch that has nothing to do with an existing product that the company company uh, has today. How do you view that disruptive piece in, in in kind of that same same vein? Yeah. Well, maybe I'll use my own my experience at Northwestern in, in this regard to, to kind of illustrate what I think needs to happen more often. Um, in my role at Kellogg, m- part of my job was to just to be five years out ahead of everybody else and be talking about what I saw coming and what I, new competitors coming into the space that were not traditional academic players. So LinkedIn, as an example, mm-hmm. or you know the, the traditional MOOC models and HBX online and you know the Minerva and these different organizations that are all doing things. Now, whether or not they're going to impact Kellogg or not is sort of a different story, but these are new entrants into the space that are trying to do the same thing that we were doing, which is give people a reputational signal, educate them, and help them find a job and put them on a, a, a different career path. Mm-hmm. And so my job was to be the, like the front person sure. to see all of that and to bring it back to the table and have the conversations to, to inspire people to think differently about what was coming. S- somebody in the organization has to have that responsibility, and that person has to be a senior person. Because, right. it, you know, it's it's first of all, it takes a lot of work, but the role of a chief innovation officer, so much of it is influence. And I've spent most of my career having to influence somebody or another every single day of my life. So, you know, influencing a frontline employee at GE, influencing clients or my team at McKinsey, influencing students, whether they knew they were being influenced or not, uh, you know, here working with all the member companies and my team. I mean, that for me is an extraordinarily important component, whoever whoever is responsible for this sort of blue sky thinking. And that senior leadership team has to come together in legitimate ways and discuss these trends on a regular basis so that they have a joint understanding or shared understanding of what might be coming and why it matters. And so some of the opportunity I've had to work with you over the last couple of months is is the tip of that iceberg, right? The tip of that conversation where you have leadership teams in here yep. talking about what's coming and some of it's going to matter to them a lot and some of it's not. But if they don't have any perspective about what's coming, that's scary. Absolutely. And I've, I've witnessed the, the Tech Trends talk several times, and it's an amazing talk. I encourage anybody who hasn't seen that to, to, to definitely um, um, sit in on, on that talk because it's really disruptive, and it gets people thinking the three to five years out even even longer. Uh, we've, we've heard several comments uh, as feedback from those talks that it, it shook up their mindsets around how they think about things and also just completely changed the way they view how they need to strategize for the future planning and product roadmap scenarios. And I think that I appreciate that feedback. I think that if you were to do a tech trend talk seven years ago, it would have looked completely different. Absolutely. Right. I mean, the, yeah. the, the shift from like linear planning to exponential planning, which might be something we want to talk about later. But it, it, I think the, the giant one that is happening right now that I'm not convinced that many of the corporate leaders actually have an appreciation for. Well, let's dive into that because I think that's an important area. So you mentioned we're living in exponential times in that tech trends talk. 
what does this mean for corporations and, and how they view innovation and, and how they should be thinking about um, being disruptive? Yeah. So the reason I, I use the word exponential and I and I have learned it from Peter Diamandis just to give credit where you know where I've where I um, got got influenced by this is really, in my mind, around the pace of change is, has never been faster than it is. I mean, today is the slowest day we'll ever experience for the rest of our lives, right? right. And, and the rate of change and the level of ambiguity has never been higher. So for some, that could be super scary. For me, that is very exciting cause, because I think we're now in a, in a point in time where the technology, that nothing is not achievable, now, I'm not sure I completely believe in the singularity where robots and people become the same thing, <laughs> sure. but like I'll stop short of that. But what we can now do with technology was, were things that we never, ever considered before. And so the, the notion around exponential is around, you know, it, it, that it's, it's getting easier to predict what might happen in the future. It's super hard to predict when it will happen. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that is because, you know, before in seven years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago, when you when you'd be looking at it about kind of predicting what's going to happen, you'd look in the past, extrapolate onto the future, and now that curve is you know kind of straight up and to the right, and 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 so you know you've heard me say this, Adam, but the iPhone X is a thousand times more powerful than the computer that put the man on the moon in 1962, and and in just a few years, it's going to be as powerful as IBM Watson that you're going to carry IBM Watson in your pocket, and so if you're if if every if the two billion people across the globe right now who have a smartphone have the power of IBM Watson in their pocket, what does that mean in terms of their ability to produce and to create and to innovate? And you know, in a couple of years, because of all the work done, being done on global connectivity, when the entire planet has access to the internet and you've got almost four billion more people connected to the internet, what does that mean in terms of who your consumers are and? And the shift in in wealth as more people get educated and and you know I mean it's just it, it's a very fun exercise but it can be a little bit mind blowing to think sure. about the impact right. for companies and so when I talk about exponential that's what I'm talking about. Interesting. So you know it's there's so much buzz right now about 5G. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the exponential time, so you mentioned you know billions more people getting connected to the internet, and now we have I think this fall the the government is opening up the bids for the five G network. So you've got some of the big telecom players and communication players bidding yep. for that. Um, you know, from from some of the research that we've done, five G just from a comparison standpoint. 4G, if you're a fan of The Walking Dead, for example, you can download one episode of The Walking Dead on a 4G network for uh, within about a minute or so, a minute or two. Um, you can actually download not the season, but the entire series of The Walking Dead on a 5G network in the same time period. Mm-hmm. So how do, you, how do you think the kind of the, that connectivity is going to expand beyond what we've seen today, just individuals being connected, uh, the actual uh, rate of, of data transfer over networks changing the way people do things or getting connected to information? Yeah, I actually have two views on this. One is it's not clear that we need to be more connected. <laughs> Those of us who are already connected and attached to our mobile uh, phones and iPads and such, um, I read not that long ago that the average person touches their phone that interacts with their phone uh, 2,500 times a day, which is, I don't think I'm, I think I'm well below average or like less like I'd like to believe that I am. That's mind blowing. <laughs> and I, from what I understand, that. it's not, it's not like pick up and like hold. It's like do something. Right. With. Yeah. 2,500 times like a day. That. So I'm hoping that that means that's like teenagers in college, you know, kind of 16 to 
20 year old, 25 year old range. Cause <laughs> I hope I'm not the one, um, on data, I've heard predictions that, that the total volume of the world's data is going to double, has the potential to double every 12 hours over the course of the next couple of years. And so, we, so for me, when you think about the, now, whether that comes true or not is sort of less important because even if it's every six months or every year, that's totally different than what it's been in the past. And what does that mean in terms of, I mean, there's so many questions you could ask with respect to that, right? Like, how are we going to train people to actually understand that data and look at that data and do something productive with it? What does that mean for themes around privacy? What does that mean for how you how how I get monetized for the use of my data being you know used around the globe for any number of things? And so there's way more questions right now than I think there are answers. I think 5G is exciting from the perspective of it's the next you know, step in the path and everything, like every, most of the stuff I'm wearing right now is connected to the, I mean, not my, my, my watch and my phone and my iPad. Right. I'm like, I'm connected to the internet yeah. constantly. Right. Um, and, and all of the, all, everything we interact with is going to have internet connectivity, right? The whole rise of the internet of things and, and sensors. And so I think, I'm not sure what world's going to be like when everybody has access to 5G. I think it's going to take a while for Absolutely. 5G to really roll out yes the government's given green light but we're we haven't turned it on yet that's right yeah. yeah absolutely so talk to me a little bit about um why you think it's important for organizations to prioritize innovation and, and in your opinion which companies have, have done this well i and i think we've talked about a little bit about the importance of the prioritization i just think there's so much change coming that if people aren't thinking about that and how it's going to impact them they're going to be dead in the water. I, this number might be slightly wrong, but I believe that um, only 50% of those companies that were on the Fortune 500 in year 2000 are still on it. And the average tenure of a company on the Fortune 500, I think in 1950 or so was 60 years, and now it's down to 20. Mm-hmm. So the the generations or the expectation of the, the, the length of um, time that companies are going to be around and, and viable and growing is is changing fast. And a lot of that is because of all these new entrants. And you look at uh, at least five companies, they're at the biggest of their of their sector that didn't exist, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Right. And so that, you know, Dropbox is the largest storage company in the world. Didi Chuxing is the largest transportation company in the world, doesn't own any of its cars, right? Dropbox doesn't own any of its warehouses. Facebook, the largest media company in the world, doesn't own any of its content, right? That Like the those business models have come sort not out of air, but they've sort of sprung up, and now they are the largest in their sectors, and all the ones competing with them are the are sort of these traditional models. And so, if that, I think there's so much proof to say innovation needs to be on the agenda because everybody is at risk, even right. Facebook and Dropbox and Airbnb and Didi and all those. Right? I mean, back to an earlier point, those the top companies are the ones that have to be the most worried about being disrupted, right? Yeah, the very absolutely. best companies are doing that. Uh, when I think about some of the companies that I, you know, I, I, I can give you an answer to the companies that I think are doing a good job on this, but the perspective is going to be from the outside in. So I don't have, I don't understand really how culturally they work. Sure. I understand from a, how they show up in the marketplace and the, in the product. So I, I'm, I haven't tried the Peloton, but I think the Peloton thing is awesome, right? How they've taken a, a, the feeling of being in a boutique gym with the accountability and allowed you to do it inside your home. I keep wanting, I, I, 
been very close to buying that every time, but they, they're growing like crazy, and the and the customer commitment and satisfaction is just crazy. SoulCycle, in a different way, has created that inside their their gyms, right? Um, Netflix is you know well used story, but how they've brought the big screen to the small screen and they they continue to innovate and culturally at least they've been very public about how they really thought about building culture around this inside their own organization um a company i've been watching a lot lately is called vip kid hmm. it's in Ch- it's a chinese company okay. and basically it's about matching up uh school teachers in the certified school teachers in the united states with chinese kids so they've got thirty thousand u.s school teachers well, nice. That are um, teaching about two hundred thousand Chinese kids okay. for extra pay. So they do it, you know, in addition to the work that they currently do, and it's just skyrocketed, right? Because there's this market where you've got Chinese families with high achieving children who want to be trained by English speaking teachers, both in the English language, but also, you know, in a whole variety of topics, and you've got. A marketplace of teachers in the United States who need additional income, yeah. and it's this match, right? And so they are—they found this gap in the market and have created this platform, and it's one of the fastest growing, uh, certainly in the education technology space, one of the one of the fastest, if not the fastest growing company in that space. Interesting. So there's just a handful. I mean, I could go on and on, like the, sure. you know, um, Allbirds shoes or Rothy's shoes or Everlane, you know. Reimagining the CPG retail experience. I mean, there's there's lots to choose from, but sure. I I don't know internally. Back to the earlier part of the conversation, how they're you know how how they are organized and how they're holding people accountable, and what is the narrative between the CEO and the rest of the organization on continuing to drive forward. Um, do you have a, a, a favorite kind of innovation over the past decade? Yeah, so I think it's probably the. The, if I look past, I think it's probably the my I, my iPad really, but sort of the launch of the iPhone iPad. I think if I look forward, I have I'm very bullish on blockchain mm-hmm. beyond crypto. You know, I think there's this debate: is it the is it the beanie baby of our generation or is it real? And yeah. I'm I'm on the side of I think it has the potential to be real and sort of the you know the the equivalent impact of the launch of the internet. Right. It's interesting because you mentioned the. I, I knew you worked as a consultant, but I didn't realize that you're, you were kind of dedicated to the financial services sector within that. I come from a, a similar background. So I was, you know, in a consultant for the big four companies, um, kind of consulting the consultants and, and cut my teeth in the financial services sectors and auditing, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, I, I couldn't agree more. I think blockchain, EX Relapse, we've done quite a bit in the blockchain space, but it's just getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when somebody nails that, they almost have the keys to the castle related to IoT and everything else. Agreed. Because and I think Chicago is a natural place for that, too really grow i mean from a supply chain perspective from a financial services perspective i mean i think we're i think chicago has the potential to be the leader in in blockchain we're not there yet but i think we do have the potential yeah. and we've seen some some really great events on blockchain specifically here at 1871 recently mm-hmm. and some some good thought leadership in that area one of the things we focus on quite a bit on your kind of career path, but you're, you're here at 1871 mm-hmm. now. You're the CEO. We're certainly excited to have you here. What role do you believe you play in creating and maintaining an innovative culture here at 1871? So first, let me just be clear about what I, why I think 1871 exists and what I think my job is. So I, I think 1871 exists to 
inspire, equip, and support founders to build great businesses. And the magic of what we do is the is and sort of the special sauce that has been created before I got here that I have inherited is the dot connecting between all the different groups of people that can help founders be successful. That includes sort of the density of lots of founders in one place where they can help each other and the mentors and the corporate partners and the events and the workshops and the um, uh, investors, et cetera, all that, university partners, all that together. And so, so I think I've got the greatest job in the world because I get to wake up every day to help individual founders, help them increase their probability of success. And I think when I think about innovation in this space, you now understand sort of what I'm thinking about every time I wake up. It's how are we, how are we getting better at doing that? Right. What are the choices that we're making inside this space that make it that that make it easier for me to help for these founders to be successful and for my team to help them be even more successful than they might have been otherwise? Right. And I think there's lots of competition. I mean, six years ago, we when we opened again, not not under my leadership, of course, but we're the only place in town. Now, there are somewhere around 140 different places in Chicago that that talk about some theme that 1871 talks about. So they're innovation hub, they're accelerator, they're an incubator, or they're co-working. Now we have co-working space, but we don't think of ourselves as a co-working place, right? right. We are the whole, the whole, the whole innovation hub, the whole thing put together. So I have to have a constant understanding of what's happening, right? And, and who else, what are the other choices for, entrepreneurs and what do our founders actually value and what do the founders that have been successful in the past, what, what do they think is important? Mm -hmm. Right. So I've, I've great fortune of having lots of the, lots of the very successful entrepreneurs in Chicago on my board. So I spent a lot of time talking to them, but okay, well, what is it? Like founder comes in the door. What, what is it that I should be equipping them with so that they don't have to spend time on those kinds of things. They can just focus on solving their problem because that's hard enough. Absolutely. Right. And so Every day, you know, every day I'm thinking about how to innovate. Now, most of that, to be fair, is sustaining innovation. It is not disruptive innovation. It is, it is making what we've got even better um, while thinking about, you know, sort of the disruptiveness going around and making sure people are equipped. Um, I think ultimately, as people, as founders leave this space because they grow and then they need more space and they go off onto the world on their own, which I think is amazing and awesome and, mm -hmm. and worthy of celebration. How do we help instill with them like what happens when companies get big? Because some of what we've been talking about all along happens because companies get big and the complexity of the organization rises. And it just yep. and it is not there's no malintent. It just happens. That's right. Yeah. And so how do you put in how do you make these big companies still feel like a small company? in terms of decision-making and speed and agility, even as they grow. And right. um, I'd like to spend more time ta helping our founders think about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I heard recently about the, the kind of the alumni network at 1871 kind of rising up. So that's part of the testimony. Yeah, we've done some research over the summer to really define, like, who are our alumni companies and, and uh, how can we be helpful to them. So we're in the process of, of reaching out to them and we've got, you know, we've got a tremendous number, like 380 companies that have left the space over the last six years that are out in the world doing great things. And some are close to 30 that have been acquired. And, you know, I mean, I just, I think that those are, that's a narrative and a storytelling that we have to be much more public about, um, both from the frame of what can we learn from that, but also those that are still on their journey, 
can any of the resources 1871 continue to help them be six you know help them grow and be successful absolutely and, and is a major differentiator between sure you and the other uh, of course kind of uh, and that's in six years i mean i mean you know like yeah, truly i've inherited like this magical place sure. right and so my job also is not to not to break it right yeah. makes sense <laughs> um so what advice would you have for listeners who might be trying to drive innovation specifically within corporations um uh, within their individual teams or the organization at large? So I think a, a couple of things, and of course it depends on where you sit in the organization, but everybody can do the following couple of things. One is, is uh, invest in your own learning and read and, and be knowledgeable about how the world is changing. So I read like two hours a day. Most of that is on Twitter. Uh, little, usually I wake up insanely early, so I spend the first couple hours of my day just reading on Twitter, uh, and then I read at night when I get when I get home. More you know, book related reading. So I think that's something that everybody can do. And from that, you have questions or you have ideas that generate. And so write those things down and have conversations with people at work. One of the things I do with my leadership team here is every meeting we start with, everybody has one minute to share something new that they learned. And it could be anything. It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be about 1871. It doesn't have sure. to be about entrepreneurship. It just has to be something that you learned, because I need, you know, the, the sort of sharing of ideas. And you never know. Well, that's super interesting, Adam, that you said that. And then maybe that can connect to this doubt over here. Or what if we thought about it this way? Or how do you apply it in this context? Sure. And I'm so have to steal that from you. By yeah, the way. please <laughs> do it. Um, so you know, and sort of then then this mashup occurs, right, where you have examples from other industries that might play over here and and i think that any individual again regardless of where you sit in the organization can own that that own the reading own the own learning and start having conversations at work and asking questions and raising ideas and um hopefully other people start to listen to you and hopefully that starts to to bubble up and that you know that's a that's a narrative for somebody that's probably sits a little bit more junior in the organization if you are a person that already has decision making power then you should absolutely be doing this and talking to your peers and trying to think about you know what are the what are the if you start to look at trends and new technologies what are those going to allow you to do differently than you could do before what does it mean in terms of changing in your consumer behavior is it going to disrupt just your company or the whole industry like what i would expect more senior people to be engaging in those kind of conversations even if it's on their own you know over the weekend or while they're driving back and forth to work so that they can have that conversation when they go in absolutely is is there any particular podcast that you subscribe to or, or things related to innovation or books you recommend um i i'm i'm relatively new to the podcast world because my commute used to be seven blocks <laughs> now it's not um I've been listening to a lot of the venture capital podcasts once, to be honest with you. So uh, venture stories, sure. I really love um, uh, the Andreessen Horowitz podcast. I really love also um, on a lot of the people I read on Twitter. I So uh, Tendaya Vicky, um, I hope I say, I'm saying his name right. He's a, a professor in England that does a lot of work on the corporate innovation space. Um uh, Alex Osterwilder, uh, Eric Rees, those kinds of folks. Um, in terms of books, I have like nine different books going on at any given time that are all different, you know, the fiction, nonfiction, 
tech biography <laughs> and I you know I put one down I pick another one up and then you sure. know maybe hopefully something magical happens in my brain or or, <laughs> or not but um, yeah there, there's no shortage of, of content to uh, to consume good stuff so one second to last question here I have for you is that, so 1871 has over 500 member companies mm-hmm. and and they range from startups to you know, the corporate innovation program with, you know several fortune 500 companies in it how can 1871 help those companies be more innovative yeah so I think the numbers right now are just over 460 startup companies out of that 500 just to give some uh, clarity about the numbers I think that I think there are several things. I mean, I think first of all, start young companies tend to be very innovative because you have to be because you have to. Most of most of them don't have funding yet, so they have to make they have to be constantly making choices and learning and thinking differently. And so, I don't necessarily need to teach them that, but we but I and my team can role model how we think about um, adapting our environment to better help them, and hopefully, they see that. And then I think the other thing is back to the earlier. Um, an earlier point is as as these companies grow, help bridge them to companies that are a little bit bigger than them or, or you know, maybe twice the size of them. Talk about what happens when you start to grow and how do you continue to hold on to that, that innovative entrepreneurial spirit while you have to put in more structure to manage the complexity. I, I mean, I think that that is where the, that inflection point of now I have, you know, I don't know everybody on my team anymore because I've gotten so big as a CEO, right? right. And I don't, I, I don't have control over everything that people are individually doing. And how do I put systems in place that allow us to continue to, to move fast and not get bogged down by all the process that is inherent in, in bigger companies? We're, we're not having those conversations yet, but I, at least on a, regular, on a regular basis, but I think that is one of the areas that I'd like to get into. Fantastic. So last question. Um, and this is kind of a fun question, but what's the one app on your phone that you can't live without? <laughs> so, uh, on my iPad, it's probably Twitter. On my on my iPhone, it's probably it, it's going to sound silly, and uh, it's it's probably Dark Sky, um, which is the only app I've ever paid for, and it. But I find it to be extraordinarily <laughs> accurate, and it will tell me that you know in seven minutes it's going to rain, and it's going to last for thirteen minutes, and it's going to be over, and so I can time my. I time my life a lot by yeah. by dark sky, so it's not very sexy, but it's it's honest. Yeah, major <laughs> utility, right? <laughs> well, fantastic. We we obviously enjoyed having you here. Thank you very much, Betsy Ziegler, um, for taking the time to talk to us today, um, and thank you for um, uh, all the work that you've done in 1871. We've uh, had a chance to benefit um, by being members of 1871 quite a bit, and we uh, we really appreciate you and your leadership. Um, is there a Twitter handle that you'd like to share with everybody sure. if in case they want to follow you? It's at Betsy Z-E-O. So Z like zebra, E-O, which is a, which is a play off my last name of Ziegler. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Creative, creative Twitter handle. Yeah, so. might have to thank my team here. They came up with it. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you, Adam. big thanks to Betsy Ziegler of 1871 for taking time to talk with us today. And thank you for tuning in to Unlocking Innovation. Remember to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud to stay up to date with new episodes as they air. See you next time.